Well, we have not had a chance to meet yet. My name is Craig, and I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, and I'm, if you're a guest with us, particularly glad you're here, but even if you're here every single week, I'm still really glad to see you. <clears throat> I also want to say good morning to anybody joining us online via Facebook Live. Thank you for joining us through the power of technology. Hope you're having a great weekend. Glad you chose to start your week here with us. So I think I thought I knew everything I needed to know when I graduated high school. I wasn't valedictorian or anything like that, but I made it through. I graduated with solid grades. I was an adult, and so I thought I knew pretty much everything I would need. Then I went to college and quickly realized I had more to learn, and so I spent four years in college learning. And I think, I thought, I knew everything I needed to know when I graduated college because they handed me a piece of paper that said I had a degree. Then I started my first full-time ministry, and on day one, realized I still had a significant amount to learn. And I think that's probably when I realized for the first time that I was always going to have more to learn if I was willing to acknowledge that, if I was willing to, in fact, keep on learning. I think that we all, if we're willing to acknowledge it, still have plenty to learn in this life, no matter what stage of that life we are in. Sure, you may know someone who thinks they have it all figured out, thinks they have all the answers they need, but I would suggest what that person still has to learn is that they still have things to learn. And so I learned something new this week. Really, we should all try to carve out some time as often as we can to learn new things, but the truth is our lives often get in the way of that. We get way too busy. We have way too much going on. But I stumbled onto something that I'm not sure I've ever read before. And I wanted to share it with you this morning because it makes perfect sense with what we're talking about in this series. Plus, then you can talk about this this week in your everyday life, and you will sound just a little bit smarter because you won't hear people talking about this stuff. But it has to do with our reasoning and how we apply it to our view of God and our view of Jesus. There are two different kinds of reasoning in this realm. And these terms, they originated with Martin Luther, but they are magisterial reasoning and ministerial reasoning. If you utilize magisterial reasoning, your own human reasoning stands over and above God's word when formulating your view of God, Jesus, and more. So basically, it starts with your preconceived notions, with your thoughts before you ever get to God's word when it comes to formulating your opinions on God. On the other hand, if you use magisterial reasoning, your own human or I'm sorry, if you use ministerial reasoning, your views of God and of Jesus are shaped formed by and submit to God's Word. And so it's a completely different starting point. You start with God's Word instead of your own opinions. And so I think we can all understand that we should approach God, approach Jesus, really everything with ministerial reasoning, but I also think we can see the appeal of magisterial reasoning. Because if you use magisterial reasoning, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, you can view them all however you want to, however is most convenient for you, however you need to, in order for it to fit your agenda or the lifestyle you want to live. Magisterial reasoning keeps people from seeing the real God, the real Jesus, because it starts from what we want instead of who, we, who they are. That's why we're in this series. It's why we're tackling this idea of real. It's why we spent four weeks on the real God. It's why we're in the midst of four weeks on our real Savior, because it's important that we see clearly. 
And it takes magisterial reasoning to see Jesus as a mascot, as we talked about last week. That he only wants what's best for us, that our happiness and pleasure are paramount, that he doesn't even really have a standard for how we live. But as we looked at Scripture, the Word of God, that view was shattered because it's simply not who Jesus is. And so today, I want to look at another view of Jesus that requires magisterial reasoning to find yourself believing. Another view that starts with preconceived notions and human logic instead of finding itself in the record of who Jesus really was and is. You know, we have these accounts in Scripture, first-hand accounts and second-hand accounts and even some third-hand accounts of people who walked with Jesus or people who walked with people who walked with Jesus. And yet sometimes we try to take our own logic and put that first. And all of these misviews of Jesus, they're tricky because we a lot of the time assume that people simply don't believe in God or don't believe that Jesus was a real person or that the accounts of his life were mostly made up or exaggerated. But with all of these views, all of these versions of Jesus that we're talking about, they get a lot right until they get a lot wrong. There are parts of who Jesus is that they are very clear on, but mess up the focus in other areas. And so today we're going to talk about the view that Jesus was just a good teacher and moral example. And my guess is you've known some folks who carry this view. And part of the reason that's my guess is because it's becoming more and more prevalent as a view of Jesus. Evidence really for generations now has been piling up that there was a historical Jesus, secular sources, Christian sources, archaeological sources, and more have combined to suggest that whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not, there was a historical, actual, real person named Jesus. And so you might find yourself from time to time in a discussion about whether there is a God or not, but you won't likely find yourself arguing about whether Jesus was a real person. Or even that he was born in Bethlehem, walked this earth, taught in and out of the temples, attracted crowds, gained followers, or even that he was arrested, tried, and crucified. Because from a historical standpoint, for most people, those facts aren't really in question. Another angle on this is that a a lot of the feelings that people have about the historical Jesus, even if they aren't sure he was the Son of God, are positive feelings. Because they would say, listen, he did a lot of good things. He cared for the poor. He took care of the sick. He was about love. Those are good things, even things that we should do. His life really was a good moral example, one that would be worth following. And and so you might say, well, what's the problem? If there are people that hold that view, I mean, at least they're not denying Jesus. Which means maybe they're open, a little bit open to actually being on the right track toward really understanding Jesus. Unfortunately, that's not usually what happens because believing that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher and a moral example is one of those beliefs that you can really settle into. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I I had this favorite chair. I say had because it's no longer with us and I miss it deeply. Um, You know, sometimes you use a chair up to the point where it has no life left in it and you can only fix it so many times and duct tape it so many times and Eventually, it's just your wife says it's got to go. Now, I, that was, I decided to get rid of it. She was very gracious in letting me keep it in the basement. But I've had this chair for a very long time. It, was, it came from my grandparents' house. It was in my bedroom at home growing up. I took it to college with me. This chair was so, I miss it, really, really miss it. 
on a typical day, not, not all that many years ago, in about an hour, I'd be in it asleep. But um, I had this chair, I took it to college, and it became very well known on my wing, in my dorm, as a great place to take a nap. And so I would come back from class, or I would come back from work, or I would come back from church on a regular basis, and one of my friends would be asleep in my chair. That's what happens when you have the comfortable spot. And what I realized about that chair was it didn't matter what you needed to do or where you needed to go, if you stopped to sit in that chair, it was hard to not settle in for a while and enjoy a little bit of rest. It was hard to get up and go on about your business because the chair just kind of held you and said, this is a good place to be. And the same is true of this particular view of Jesus. It is very easy to settle into this idea that Jesus is just a good teacher and a moral example and never move on. It's a comfortable place to find yourself. It's found a lot among those who would consider themselves maybe academic in nature or maybe feel like they've got a higher level of, of learning than some. It's not exclusive to those folks, and not all those folks have this belief. Hear me clearly on that, but there is a temptation sometimes for us to say, well, I'm a little too smart or a little too evolved in my thinking to believe in Jesus and believe in miracles and believe that someone could rise from the dead. Additionally, in this category of belief, there is no mandate to follow this Jesus. He's just another guy who, who may be worth emulating. Seeing Jesus as a good teacher and a moral example alone requires no real response from man. And so for someone who who falls into this category of belief, when they need to talk about Jesus, they can. But he has no impact, no bearing on their everyday life. See, in this version of Jesus, some very specific things that Scripture points to about Jesus have to be separated from him have to be removed from the person of Jesus as Scripture defines him. It's not justifiable, but it's what some people do to reconcile their lack of belief with a recognized historical Jesus. And so I want to share a couple of those those with you today and some Scriptures that show why they're flawed. So the first one is this. If Jesus was just a good teacher and a moral example, then his divinity is doubtful. This is where it starts. Removing the divine nature of Jesus, removing the Son of God title makes Jesus a lot more palatable to a lot more people, but it also removes his claimed authority and means, as we said a moment ago, that we can certainly learn from him, but we don't need to follow him. Additionally, this is a convenient piece of the puzzle for those who would deny the existence of God but acknowledge the historical evidence for a man named Jesus because then they would say, well, he was a man, he walked the earth, but he wasn't the son of God because there is no God. From a human perspective, it's a rational explanation, but there is nothing rational about the divinity of Jesus. He was, as hard as it is for us to understand because we are human, he was fully God and fully man as he walked this earth. It was something that was said about him by prophets long before he came to this earth, said about him by John the Baptist as he prepared the way for Jesus, said by Jesus himself, and something spoken by God himself from the heavens. In fact, I want to look at a couple of those in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me 
great joy. And in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, six days later, Jesus took Peter and two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. So I understand that the quoting Scripture to convince someone that Jesus was divine, that he was the Son of God, it may seem like a futile process because they could just say, well, I don't believe that this is real. Or I don't believe that that's actually what happened. I believe somebody thought this would be a good way to to make it seem like Jesus was the Son of God, but they probably made that up. But I would look to those who were said to be present in those situations. I would look to John the Baptist and Peter and James and John. Historical sources, not biblical sources, historical sources tell us that all four of those men allowed themselves to be killed before they would ever recant their belief that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that he was sent to save man from sin and death and hell, and they allowed themselves to die rather than take that back. Now, I've never faced death before directly, and my guess is you haven't either, but there are a lot of things you would deny if it meant you got to live. I think that's probably the case for all of us because we're human. So the thing you wouldn't deny, the thing that you would go to your grave claiming, how great your belief must be in that. See, some will deny the divinity of Jesus, but those who walked with him, those that saw it firsthand, who heard the voice of God here, they could not deny his divinity, that he was the son of God. And the second thing is, if Jesus was a good teacher, Or a moral example, if that's all he was, then anything supernatural is a sham and miracles are make-believe. This goes along with the denial of divinity. Beyond Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God, claiming his own divinity, beyond others referencing it, and even beyond God affirming it, some of the best evidence of Jesus' divinity is in his supernatural abilities, in the miracles he performed. And so just as doubting his divinity takes away his authority, Understanding that that, the supernatural was a sham and miracles were make-believe takes away his power. And it puts Jesus on level with a lot of false messiahs that showed up throughout history that were all talk and no action or all talk and fake action. You see, there are a lot of people, even today, that still believe that the miracles described in Scripture either didn't happen or have a non-supernatural or non-miraculous explanation. You know, the, the blind guy that Jesus gave sight to wasn't really blind, or things like that. Which is convenient logic, and yet there are some reasons to believe that that is simply a cop-out. I mean, consider the significant number of miracles that Jesus is believed to have done, and consider that even if you could answer every single one of those miracles recorded in Scripture with some sort of explanation that takes away the miraculous aspect of it, Each gospel writer took the time to specifically write that Jesus did many more miracles than simply the ones recorded in their writings. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew writes it this way, beginning in verse 23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. 
and he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Mark, in chapter 6, verse 56 Wherever he went, in villages, cities, on the countryside, they brought the sick out to the marketplaces. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. Luke, chapter 6, beginning verse 17. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. And there were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. And then John chapter 20, beginning of verse 30, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. You see, to me, the firsthand accounts of these miracles, the variety of the miracles, the impossible nature of so many of these miracles, and the lack of immediate denial surrounding these miracles make it clear that Jesus was, in fact, a miracle worker, the supernaturally powerful Son of God. I mean, think about it. If these were faked, somebody would have spilled the beans at some point. Either that or this was the most well-orchestrated conspiracy ever. Because with that many people being healed, somebody would have said, never mind, I was already fine. And yet we have no record of anyone denying what had happened. Consider even the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were so against Jesus, who wanted nothing more than to get rid of Jesus. Even they could not deny the miracles that they had seen. The best that they could do was to suggest that Jesus' power came from somewhere other than God. And so they suggested on a regular basis that it came from Satan. And yet we only see from Jesus beneficial miracles, which doesn't sound very much like Satan's game. You see, some will deny the miraculous and come up with reasons that it never happened. But again, those who walked with Jesus would not, could not, and did not deny his supernatural power nor the miracles that he performed. And then thirdly, and really most importantly, if Jesus was just a good teacher or a moral example, then his death was just a death. This is really where we get into what really matters, And again, when we're talking about Jesus, the historical record would even confirm that he was arrested, that he was tried, that he was crucified. A lot of people that don't believe Jesus was the Messiah would not argue about his death. They would argue about him being raised from the dead, a supernatural act as we talked about a moment ago, but just as importantly, they would argue about that death having a purpose. The idea that Jesus could take our place, the idea that Jesus needed to take our place, that we needed to be saved, is problematic to a lot of people. And yet that's exactly why Jesus came. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He sums it up even more succinctly in Galatians chapter 4, being in verse 4, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. I love the way Matthew Richard put it in his book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? I I put this in your insert so you could look at it later if you wanted to go back to it. Here's what he said. He said, keep in mind that if Jesus were not true God and sinless, his life and death would be nothing and we would be lost and condemned. If Jesus were not God, his life and death would have no power over sin and death and the devil. And so understand, the key to the story, one of the main keys to the story of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us is that he was fully God. But we also need this reminder. He goes on, he says, on the other hand, if Jesus were not true man, how could he have kept the requirements of the law and how could he have died? Indeed, in Jesus, we see true God and true man. You can't just take one. And yet a lot of people want to believe he was, he was a true man, absolutely. Look, he died. Obviously, he was a man. They would even say he was a man. If there's a law, he's subject to it. But they would stop short of saying he's fully God. It's both. Indeed, in Jesus, we see true God and true man. You see, here's the thing. A a good teacher and a moral example could do us a lot of good. We should find those kinds of people to learn from. Really, we should all be trying our best to be good teachers and moral examples for others. I feel like I need to be a good teacher and a moral example for my children. That's part of my job. But a good teacher And a moral example would not ultimately be able to save us with knowledge and morals. It just wouldn't. And yet I believe that Jesus, the same Jesus historically acknowledged by so many, was fully God and fully man and therefore was uniquely able to save us through his death and resurrection and that that is exactly why he came in the first place. You cannot separate the divinity from Jesus or there was no purpose in Jesus coming. I believe Jesus proved his divinity. So there must have been that purpose. Consider this story of Jesus himself explaining who he was, where he came from, and why he came. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. It was now winter and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. And the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are, in the, or if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now you have to remember that, that God's people had been waiting for generations for a promised Messiah. And that Jesus had hinted on and off to this being him. That his miracles and the healing had pointed to that being the case. But in a lot of times, as you read through Scripture... You see Jesus heal someone and then say something very, very interesting. He says, tell no one what has happened. Tell no one what you've seen. You see, if Jesus had been too clear about his role as Messiah too early, the timeline would not have been right. 
And so we're to this point now where people are coming to Jesus and they're saying, listen, we're tired of the games. We want to know what's really going on. Are you the promised Messiah or should we expect someone else? Verse 25, Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. You don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. And Jesus confirms again as he's done several times to these people, listen, I am from God. God and I, the Father and I are one. Which gets a reaction, verse 31, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works, for which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. And it's in that we see we have a mixture of people in this crowd. Some are there because they want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Some are there because they want Jesus to admit he's the Messiah so they can stone him and kill him for blasphemy because they believe he's just abandoned, he's violating the law of God. Verse 34, Jesus replied, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set me apart And sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do His work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And in a way, Jesus kind of doubles down here. And He says, look at what I did. Look at what I've done. Look at the proof. See the miracles. And even if you don't believe the words I'm saying, look at my track record. The Father and I are one. Verse 39, once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while, and many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he has said about this man has come true, and many who were there believed in Jesus. You see, Ultimately, Jesus was leaving them with a choice. He told them to consider what he had done, the miracles, all the teaching, and if they still didn't believe that he was divine, that he was from the Father, that he and the Father were one, then it would require no response on their part. They didn't didn't need to do anything for him. Because if they believed that he was just a man, they could take him or leave him. In fact, according to their logic, that meant if he was just a man, that they needed to continue to seek to have him arrested and killed, which is ultimately what they did. But in this moment, if they believed that he was divine, that he was from the Father, and that he and the Father were one, it would require a response from them. And that response was to follow. He said, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. And we see, and many followed him. And many who were there believed in Jesus. You see, if Jesus was fully God and fully man, then his death, his, his historically acknowledged death, was not just another death. It was a death and a resurrection that both compel us to respond. 
If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, that compels you to respond to him, to follow him. And if you believe that today, that he paid the price for your sins, but you haven't accepted him as your savior and been baptized in his name, it's time to make that decision. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you have made that decision, but maybe your view of Jesus has gotten clouded or blurred, or there's been some distance between you and your Savior, and you recognize that, but you want to come home, you want to rededicate your life to him, I'd love to talk to you about that as well. Or if you're an immersed believer in Christ and you've been around New Life for a while, and you're ready to make this your church home, to become a member of the family here at New Life, I'd love to talk to you about that as well. And so if you have any of those decisions to make, I would encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing together.